0: Hey, how's it going folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. We have a very special guest on the podcast today. One of the founders of an organization called Indian Land Race Exchange, which works to preserve ancient land race genetics and communities. And if you follow them on Instagram, just type in Indian Land Race Exchange and you'll find it. You'll see all kinds of beautiful pictures of cannabis plants and cannabis concentrates, hash that's made in traditional methods, and it is absolutely beautiful. Indian Land Race Exchange really reminds us that the birthplace of cannabis culture is South Asia and Central Asia. This is where cannabis first originated and how it first became intermingled with human cultures. So we're really thankful to people like our guest, Irazin, who is engaged in preserving this history. Isn't that right, Bean?
1: Oh, yeah. You mentioned those beautiful, beautiful pictures on the Instagram, but... Uh, I think what we both discovered is the story of this organization is even more beautiful or as beautiful Mm -hmm. as those photos. I did a piece on them for Leafly, just a shout out to Leafly for supporting my journalism. And I want to read a little piece of it to set up this episode for everybody. Because it talks about how there's been attempts to locate, preserve, and proliferate these ancient strains, but... Most such efforts have been led by geographical and cultural outsiders, oftentimes driven more by profits than by preservation. But over the past five years, this grassroots, locally-led, globally crowdsourced effort has emerged to help defend and support not just these cannabis genetics, but these communities, these traditional cultivation communities. And so the Indian Land Race Exchange describes itself as a collection of indigenous frontline farmers, seed collectors, and preservationists with the goal of supporting these farmers economically while helping to spread and preserve their land race strains basically exactly what we fucks with on this podcast
0: yes truly what a noble effort and you know something that i always try to espouse among people who trace their heritage back to south and central asia is that cannabis is a part of your culture going back hundreds and hundreds of years going back generations Regardless of what post-colonial laws have influenced the modern culture of those places to be like, which in some cases is still somewhat anti-cannabis, cannabis is a part of your history. doesn't matter what part of the region. doesn't matter what your cultural or religious lineage is. And I think that today's episode highlights that. And we had a really wonderful conversation with Irazin. He tells us all of these wonderful things about a culture outside of American cannabis culture. I think living here, getting used to the politics and the discussions around cannabis here in America, we sort of lose sight of the fact that this is a global community and a global conversation. And Irazin really reminds us that there's a whole world of cannabis out there and it is beautiful. Another thing we discussed in this episode that I really enjoyed hearing about is the Pakistani land race exchange. Despite the fact that these two nations have been at odds for so many years. Their land race exchanges are actually good friends. They're in communication. They share information. And I think that that just really highlights the healing power of weed, the thing that brings us all together. And I am just absolutely stoked about this episode and one of the best parts
1: is you listener dear listener can access these seeds you can access these genetics you can grow these beautiful plants and when we talk about ogs in the cannabis world sometimes you picture that grizzled old hippie well that's an og or sometimes we talk about the jazz culture of the 1930s well those are ogs but when we talk about true ogs We have to go back to these traditional cultivation communities that you're talking about. And so it's really cool to do an episode that talks about that long history, but also connects with us right now. These are plants that you can grow, you can smoke, you can share, and it will directly benefit the farmers in those regions. And if you want to directly benefit us on this podcast... Uh, the best way to do that is to join us on Patreon. We are putting up all kinds of exclusive content. We deeply, deeply appreciate those of you supporting us. As a special bonus, you can get a copy, a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly. I will ship it right to you and we will be very, very grateful to you.
0: That is right. We love our patrons. And if you are not a patron, but are a listener, we encourage you to check us out. Just Google great moments in weed history Patreon and you'll see all the bonus content that we're throwing up there on our Patreon. And of course, we would also really love it if you could post something about the show with the hashtag great moments in weed history and you can add us. That's GMIWH podcast on all platforms so we can get this community growing online and invite in more stoners, more history buffs, more weed enthusiasts to join this little party we got going on here Alrighty, so with that i think it's time to get into our episode i have a, a nice bong packed here a little bit different for me today but i've been on the bong thing lately and this thing is packed to the gills so i'm ready to rock mm-hmm. bean how about you
1: Oh, I got a little bowl packed with uh, some sprinkled old school hash on top. You know, these are also hashish cultures that we're talking about Mm -hmm. in the episode. It didn't come from as far away as India, but it's definitely in the style. If you're not quite there yet, it's cool. No worries. You can hit pause. You can split a blunt, you can roll a joint, you can pack a bong like my compatriot here, you can dab a dab or you can do whatever the next thing to do with weed is. Uh, When you're done, we'll certainly be ready. If you're ready. For another great Great moment Moment in in weed history. history.
0: All right, so here we are with Iranzin from Indian Land Race Exchange. Welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. We've been looking at gorgeous pictures of your cannabis plants and hash for ages now, and we're both really, really excited to be talking to you.
2: Thank you so much for uh, having me on the show. Uh- I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and speak about cannabis uh, with you guys and I mean also share it with so many other people uh, who would be listening to this.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So, can you tell us how your history with cannabis began? Bring us back to the
2: beginning. I, I mean basically I come from a place you know where cannabis uh, is is everywhere when you when you go outside of your house it's not like you have to go somewhere and Find a cannabis plant, or you have to learn about the cannabis the way usually people do uh, in the Western countries, and that is by actually buying some. But here it's a little different, I mean, because I come from a, a Himalayan state. So, everywhere uh, around our house, you know, around our locality, there are cannabis plants just growing just like any other plant, and it's just like very normal for anybody to be around. So, we're basically introduced to the plant, I mean, uh, you know, very beginning of a life. I mean, not just me, but Pretty much like anybody you know who lives there or who comes from that part of the world. That's just the introduction, but uh, we really don't become conscious of the plant in a way that we can use and you know we can medicate ourselves with. I mean, of course, that part comes later, as you know once uh, we grow and you know you know we look around that you know this this plant is not just uh, like a plant that's growing everywhere. You know, our family members are using it for like worship. Uh, they're using the same plant for, you know, certain food items, like they're making chutney with it. They're even uh, giving it uh, to the uh, cows, you know, as a medicine when they have some uh, trouble in their stomach. I was really introduced to the cannabis in a very positive way, I would say, uh, just like you'd be introduced to, let's say, tomatoes or, you know, any other fruit or vegetable. Uh, that is just a very wow. useful plant. And, you know, uh, this is something that's uh, part of of our existence, you know, that that this is with us and it's all right.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. You know, I've told Bean many stories about my childhood, which was spent in Thailand, but the summers we would go to Pakistan to Islamabad and there's weed growing everywhere. That was my introduction to the plant as well. We would spend two, three months there and it was just in any available green space, there was weed growing there isn't that crazy, Bean? Can you imagine something like that?
1: Well, I, I grew up in New Jersey where weed was <laughs> everywhere behind a bowling alley or outside an arcade. <laughs> and and these plants that were that were, as you say, everywhere, Devak, were 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 they psychoactive? Were they plants that were smoking grade, say? Or were they
2: more feral, more hemp like? Uh, you know, cannabis is not really seen in such a way, you know, that it's a plant that needs to be categorized into hemp, a different, uh, you know, species of the plant. And then, you know, uh, the cannabis, you know, that actually has the psychoactive cannabinoids in it. It's just the natural variety, you know, the, uh, the landrace variety, uh, which is locally adapted to that re- uh, to whatever that region happens to be. It's just that variety that grows out there. And yes, those varieties in in general have a certain amount of, you know, THC in them. So, you know, they have the ability to get you high. the the plants in general are uh, the the land raised varieties which are adapted to those regions and some of those regions because people are also growing them, cultivating those varieties. So they become domesticated and they have like slightly different features. Uh, But when you talk about roadside and just like Abdullah said, you know, just about any green patch you see, you know, around these places, there's bound to be some cannabis cannabis plants there. So those plants, of course, were a little different, a little more feral. But I think all in all, all of those plants have the capability of uh, g- getting someone high if they know how to, uh, you know, extract it and use it to their benefit. And
0: and these varieties are pretty cannabinoid balanced just naturally, is that
2: correct? Yeah, a- a- absolutely. I think, you know, they, they have uh, a certain amount of THC and then they have a certain amount of CBD and even, uh, you know, some of the other very rare cannabinoids Cannabinoids, which are not easily found. I'll just give you an example. So we uh, we, we just released like a landrace variety from Pakistan itself, which it, it was from uh, Swabi, so somewhere around like Punjab. And uh, when we tested plants from that popu- uh, you know, landrace population, it just so happens that almost every last plant contains THCV in, in them which is basically a very rare cannabinoid and even if you do find it, you don't really find it like across the board in every last plant within a population. You just find it in like one odd plant. It's that rare basically. Those varieties are much more balanced simply in terms of cannabinoids and not really in you know how much it can get you high. Well
1: that that really speaks to the importance of the work that, that you're doing with a lot of people uh, in as part of the Indian Land Race Exchange and we want to get into that of course but I think we talked about how cannabis came into your life, just being ubiquitous in the environment. How did cannabis uh, get its way into your body and your consciousness?
2: Yeah, so uh, the the, the way it found its way into my lungs, basically, I would say is, (laughs) you know, in our village, we we didn't really have like a water facility, like we didn't have running water in our uh, house. So we basically have to, you know, pick up pots in the morning, like six, seven, five, As soon as you could wake up and then just go down the mountain and just collect some water from like a natural fountain, which was on the slope. So on the way, you know, we'd be accompanied with all of these uh, other guys, you were like elder guys who were basically, you know, rubbing the plants and they would just ask us to rub the plants as well. I mean, I was just like really young, maybe around like seven, eight years old, six years old. So I didn't even know like what I'm doing, but... Like they're just telling us to just rub these plants because our hands are like small and soft. So they think our hand gets like this different kind of resin. And uh, by the time we'd reach, uh, you know, the spot where we'd get the water, you know, they'll just take out all the hash from our hands and then just collect it and, you know, mix it with tobacco and then just fill it into the cigarette. And it was like really intriguing for us because we couldn't really understand. And it was so confusing that they're taking, uh, you know, this dirt from our hand and just mixing it in tobacco and then just you know, emptying the cigarette and then filling it again. it just just mind boggling. There's so many things, you know, which needs to be answered there in that whole process. One thing that, you know, we, we, we did notice is that once, you know, they smoked that cigarette, they all get got really happy and, and they were like so eager to smoke it. And then, you know, they were just all happy and joking and, you know, just, just pick up the water, no problem and just, you know, go back up. So uh, slowly and steadily, then as we started smoking, so then, then we got to you know, oh, okay, you know, they were just basically making us make hash for them. So it's.
0: It, it, do you think that there's a purpose to introducing you guys to cannabis in this way when you're very young? Or are they just selfishly trying to save themselves a little trouble by having someone else collect the hash? Yeah,
2: I, I think they just like add to like the labor force, basically. I think that's the basic idea there. Uh, <laughs> But I think, yes, you know, uh, what it automatically does, I mean, you know, I mean, that's the beauty of, you know, this whole process, the way, uh, you know, pans out is that those kids end up learning a lot about resin. And, you know, when you interact in such a way from, you know, such an uh, early age you're just bound to make like a special relationship with the plant and you just have uh, going to have this different, you know, outlook towards the plant and you're not just going to see it as a commodity, you know, that you're going to use to make money just like wheat or rice. Because at the end of the day, I mean, if you go to Pakistan, you know, there are like so many you know, farmers who are not just growing cannabis, but along with cannabis, they grow apples and they grow grapes and all of these other crops and and they're making money from all of it. But then when it comes to cannabis, you know, they seem to have this really special connection, this relationship with with the plant could be called uh, nothing short of spiritual in a way. I mean, not in a religious way, I would say, but just in in a way that uh, the, the relationship dynamics is and because these are not entities from like both human entities, you know, one is a plant, one is a human, but they have like these feelings towards the plant. And that's one of the reasons they're able to process those plants in a way that it makes one of the best hashes in the world. The secret ingredient
0: is love. You know, that, that, that's that's something that we really try to uh, get the word out about here in America because, you know, of course, there's a lot of places that, that are starting to head towards a more commercial way of growing and cultivating and, and distributing cannabis. And I think you can taste the difference. I think you can really tell when someone hasn't, you know, shown love to that plant, and so, in, in your experience, how did you get involved with
2: the actual cultivation practices and what are some of those practices? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, that part, of course, had to come a little later because I'm not exactly, you know, the person, like, who's who's been, like, a family who was directly cultivating like my mother and my father like they weren't cultivating of course there were a lot of people in our village and even you know some of the uh, some of our relatives that we could see were like making money off it everyone's using it for different reasons but then everybody was not cultivating so and then I actually went to the cities, so I didn't really have this, you know, lasting connection for a very long time with the cannabis. I was introduced to cannabis in a very different way. Now, this time around, you know, when you go to college and, you, and I'm making, you know, all these new friends, basically, I, I met people from like Himachal Pradesh. This is a different uh, Himalayan state. And then they have these better techniques to, you know, make hash. Malana Valley is there. The hash that they brought from, you know, they, their state was just so much different, so much better, more, uh, you know, tasty, and you know, the high was different. It, it was even more intense. Then you want to know, you know, oh, you know, there's like better hash out there, you know, okay. This is one I've been smoking before, but this is, like, so much better. Then at the same time, we're also getting to smoke, like, South Indian weed. Some of our friends are from, like, southern states like Kerala and uh, uh, Orissa, and they're bringing weed from their places, and they have these different effects to us. You know, that's basically another... phase of learning, when, when, when you're learning, okay, not just your home state, but there are like so many of these other people that come from different parts of India who, uh, and these places that has different geography, they even have cannabis and it's so much different. But I think, you know, the, like the first place that we uh, did go to was like Milana because it was like much closer. And it was within Northern India and we were in Northern India. So we just started out from there. And then we started going to like all of these places, you know, one by one, basically documenting everything. Because when we went there, you know, we went there for cannabis, not knowing that there is going to be so much cultural history and, you know, so much more to it that we are actually going to find. But When we got there, we wanted to just come back year after year and again and again, because we thought this is not something that we're doing one off. We just... Want to do this, you know, over and over again. Make relationship with these people. Want to make sure, you know, that we can also help these people because these people are basically, you know, uh, in a sense they're like heroes because, as you understand, the legal status right now in India is not, uh, you know, in favor of like you can't grow it, right? So they're still growing it against the all odds, even though it's not legal, and they're not letting, you know, these other. Varieties, you know get mixed with it. So they're actually able to save all of those raw ingredients that gave rise to what we enjoy So much in, in form of hybrids So should we want to go back anytime? I mean, these are the people, you know uh, Where we would fall back on because they have, uh, you know, saved all these varieties So once we we got to all these places and we understood, you know that this is just not about cannabis and this other like facets to, to this whole thing that there's uh, there's going to be a facet of preservation because these people are going to need some help. So then we created the, this system, you know, that is going to work for everyone. We, we have to create a channel, you know, that could work as like a seamless bridge between both of these worlds, between this lost world of cannabis tucked away in, you know, parts of India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, you know, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, you know, all of these countries, and then just make this bridge over to these people, you know, who are right now at the forefront of cannabis, when you, when you talk about innovation and creating hybrids, making products, you know, really taking it out there. That's what we became. We became that exchange of knowledge and seeds and resources between th- these two worlds. And it, it has worked out beautifully, you know, uh, ever since 2014. I'm, I'm like really proud to be doing it for like seven long years now. You know, it has benefited so many people on the either sides of this bridge. When you talk about, you know, breeders in U.S. and Europe and all the other Western countries, people who are able to legally actually, you know, develop these varieties and need these raw ingredients in the form of strains. And then farmers who actually needed more resources so that they can have uh, what they're lacking in terms of that they could make new wells for them. They could, like, Bring more water to their villages, they could bring batteries and you know, solar chargers because some of these places are so remote, you know, they they can't even have electricity.
1: I I want to go back to that first trip you took to Ballada, and I think for our our listeners, think the Humboldt County of India, except instead of second and third generation farmers, hundreds and, and perhaps even a thousand years of cannabis growing history, and what 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 connects with me, and I, I'm sure with Abdullah, is this started out as a bunch of college kids chasing the ultimate hash. You you didn't seem to have this clear idea of a of of a mission when you got there, so. So take us to that first trip. When you arrived, what did you see? What did you smell
2: and what did, what did you learn? Who did you meet? I mean, the first time we got there, of course, you know, uh, we didn't have much expectations, I mean, in, in, in terms of what we're going to find there. So it was more of like a discovery that we're going to make and whatever it's going to be, we're going to embrace it. Because there was one thing that we knew for sure, there's gonna be cannabis and there's gonna be a lot of cannabis. We've been told about that. So once we got there, one thing became very clear that, OK, there's going to be uh, no shortage of cannabis in this place because we even we hadn't even like, you know, reached the place and we are starting like tons and tons of plants. You had like these beautiful plants with like big buds and they're like completely unaccounted for. Like, you know, you could tell because it's growing on the side of a road or maybe on a slope unattended you know nobody's gonna claim it but it's got like a beautiful bud it's just unseen for us because you know we had seen plants on the ro- so roadside and other places but then they were like most of feral plants whenever you saw like nice plants with big buds you know they were always someone's plant somebody had domesticated them it belonged to someone but there was so much abundance of cannabis in that place in Malana Valley that they were basically growing everywhere like there are hundreds of plants that You could tell are not even going to be harvested by anyone. I mean, in particular, anybody can just take them. So we were uh, completely happy. Okay. You know, we've reached the right place. So that's not really going to be an issue. Then you have to make this trek, you know, about two kilometers upward to the village. Once you you get there, so you can see the village and then you have to get down uh, a little bit and then you climb up to the village. Basically, that's like a two kilometers hike, not much. And as soon as you like start walking up to the village, you have this um, intense aroma of cannabis, you know, it's like all of these different subtle little smells that, you know, cannabis and compass, you know, all of these are present in the air and as, as you're getting like closer and closer to the village, those smells begin to get like more, you know, intense. And it, 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 it's almost like that cartoon, you know, where a dog or like the cat is like uh, attracted towards like a cheese or like a pie.
0: So you're like floating through the air towards the smell. Yeah, yeah you can see. <laughs> you can,
2: it, it, it's just that good, I mean. Uh, just to put it in words, as soon as you get to the village, there's this like little place where you have waterfall-like situation. It's not really a waterfall, but you have like a lot of water that you can wash your face because by that point, you know, you've really exhausted yourself climbing up to the village. And there's a little shop. So there is a guy, you know, who's selling. So that's basically like the first thing that you're going to run into There'd be this guy, he's he's going to like attempt to sell you some hash. We, We started asking, you know, how much is it? Because, you know, back in the cities, there is no tasting, like they don't give you some to taste, nothing. You just have to buy and just, you know, get out of there and then just smoke in your house. And he said, don't worry about the money. Just sit down and smoke and, you know, we're chilling. And there is no conversation of money, you know, that, you know, nothing of that. And we've like already smoked so much of his, you know, stuff by the time he got tea and everything. Then we were like, yeah, so how much is it? And he was like, all right, you're going to the village, no problem, when you're coming back, you, know, you, you, you can buy, don't worry about it, you're gonna get like, a lot of hash. It's a beautiful culture and then you know, we were told uh, something about Malana in particular because we were going to like this particular village. Uh, okay, you're not supposed to really like, touch anyone and then you're not even supposed to touch their uh, houses and uh, basically you can't even like climb on their porch. They don't want you guys to, like, p- pollute them with this, like, outside, <laughs> like, influence. I, I, absolutely. I mean, I mean they, they have the, their own set of beliefs. You know, you could look at it in, in two different ways. I mean, you know, one, one is that, you know, it, it doesn't really feel very good, you know, in, in general that, you know, you, you won't be able to, like, touch someone's house or touch someone because, you know, you don't really have any bad intent towards anyone. But then if, if you just, like, stop for a moment and you try to think it from the other Uh, people's perspective is that they are allowing you to actually, you know, come to their village while their plants are like in full flower and everything. I I don't think there would be like a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of places, like if you go to like Manipur or some of these northeastern places, when their plants are in flowering, you know, they're like people with guns, you know, patrolling the crop. And if they don't know you, they'll basically shoot at you, right? So that was not there. I mean, they really want you to come, look at their plants, enjoy. But at the same time, you know, they have their own way of just just, just making sure they, they can preserve their culture, you know, as it is. I mean, I mean, luckily for me, I mean, we had that perspective going going there. So, you know, just had a great time. I mean, you know, we sat with so many people, you know, smoke hash and, you know, learned about so many techniques that these people do that these people not only just hand rub their hashish, you know, once winters kick in and it starts to actually uh, it, it's, a t- it's time for a snowfall. They, uh, they actually pull out, you know, some of the crops that they had actually saved and they make, uh, I, uh, you know, uh, what, what do you call that bubble hash? You know, they use the natural snow to extract the resin. Wow. What you're
0: saying is that they're taking their own wild natural land-raised cannabis and they're making ice hash out of it using the snow in the mountains around them.
2: They're waiting for the snow, so what they would do is they wouldn't just go through the entire crop robbing it. They're they going to save like a certain part of it because they know there's gonna be snowfall and they'll be making bubble hash. So once the time comes and it's it's snowfall time, they'll just pick up a lot of snow and you know start extracting. When did you start to realize
1: some of the specific challenges that these farmers and these indigenous farming communities, these long hashish producing communities were facing? And how did you come to realize that that you and your friends and sort of your access, as you say, to this other world of cannabis could play a
2: role in, in helping? Once you start going to these places again and again, that's basically when you can start scratching a little bit and... You, you try to understand more about these people, they, they get closer to you. People in general, you know, well, you know when they welcome you, they don't want to like bombard you with, you know, oh, you know, we, we have this bad and we have, have it that bad. You know, they just want to talk about good things, nice mountain, fresh air, good food and water, a nice ash. But slowly and steadily, we did understand, you know, uh, beneath all this, you know, uh, happy-go-lucky, you know, facade of place, you know, that there is. There are very uh, huge challenges that there are a lot of people, you know, who are actually incarcerated right now for this thing. Uh, there, there are a lot of people who, who are actually not doing very well financially, even though, you know, they're, they're putting in, you know, all the work, they have enough land to actually grow. But they grow and because, you know, their land happens to be at like a lower uh, you know, lower place. So most of the crops get like, uh, you know, cut by like police and, you know, all these people who come in during the season and they just make sure that these people can't grow and can't sell. They're just basically trying to push these people away from, you know, cultivating, trying to wean them, but, you know, not offering them any alternative, not giving them any solution, really. I mean, just coming in and just destroying a little something that they have going for them. You know, some people are lucky they have their farms, you know, really up, in the mountains and of course you know police won't do that much of an effort because they're not really to do work but you know anybody you know whose fields are like low-lying and you know places were like really easy easily accessible and you know visible they would just go and just cut entirety of that a farmer who, who's grown this thing for the last seven to eight months and he's just at the brink of actually you know turning that into resources for for his family and you know for starting the next season it just gets taken away like one night you have a farm and you know next day you know somebody takes it we really don't have an exact solution for it i mean i'm not really like in a position that i could actually you know go and you know fight you know with the authority and you know help them in such a way but what we can do you know what what we thought is you know telling these people something you know that look if 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 tomorrow something happens, something big happens, you know, nobody will be able to stop it, neither you nor us. But what we can do is, we can take steps to ensure if that happens, we we still have part of this culture and. We can do this by saving the seeds of your plant and not just saving it here with us. We can actually get these seeds to a place where really the action is right now, where everything is legal and those people are really in a place to really put in the efforts and actually preserve them. In India, you have like more than a hundred landrace varieties in different places. If one day somebody comes and stops you from doing this, then if you're not growing it, then these varieties are gone forever. So somebody has to really come in and play that role and we just thought, you know, it's going to be us that we could actually, you know, not only just go to one place at a time, we could have like teams who are actually, you know, locally uh, available to go to these places instantly, connect with those farmers because in India, uh, there's another challenge because there there are so many languages which are spoken at so many of these different places and it becomes hard to connect, but Luckily, we have, we have our friends out there who speak the local language and then they can speak to us. And then we can speak to people out outside in the world. So it, it's this seamless vessel of information and genetics. And we're making sure that we have a, a centralized seed bank here in India. We have stored every last variety that we've ever collected and it's preserved in a way that it can be accessed at any time and those seeds can be germinated. So those are safe. We have entrusted other people in different countries as well and given them copies of those seeds so that they can also preserve it. So what that really does is it double, triple, you know, four times you just, just backs it up and we can be absolutely sure that it's just waterproof and we are not going to, you know, lose any of these genetics. As long as we have these genetics, in a way, we we, we have the entire culture in it because this plant is the culture basically you know when you go to a place like malara and you look at their culture the culture is of hash making and then when you look at their plant their plant looks like a beautiful hash plant and you really understand you know is the culture that makes the plant really you go to Uttarakhand uh, it's a different Himalayan state those people are really off the fiber and their plants you know you could just look at them and tell you know they're like made to extract fiber so first off We, as
0: a podcast, salute you for all the work you're doing. You're truly preserving the most ancient of cannabis history, the most precious of cannabis culture, and that is just wonderful. So thank you for doing that. And, you know, it's always surprising and disappointing to hear that in places where cannabis culture is ancient history and it's a culture that's been developed and kept alive for thousands of years, that there is this post-colonial phenomenon where the colonizers came in they prohibited cannabis, they left, and then the people left are still enforcing those laws and still keeping cannabis illegal. And it's so sad that people are going into places like Malata or you know other ha- ancient hash centers and stopping people from growing cannabis, taking away their crop, taking away their ability to, to make a livelihood. So can you give us some idea of how cannabis is perceived among the general population in India what is prohibition culture like there? How harsh is the police? Is there any hope? Is there any legalization movement? What's going on? Uh,
2: cannabis in India, actually, it, it, it's very confusing when, you, when you're gonna talk about like the legal status of this plant. I'm, I'm gonna start from really like the religious aspect of the plant because I think that predominantly you know how and why cannabis is associated so much to India. Uh, nearly like 80% of the population in India is like Hindus. And one of the most important deities, the Shiva, I mean, he, he represents and he's the god of that plant, you could say in a way.
0: Yeah, I'll just insert here. We did an episode on Shiva Ratri, So if anyone listening is curious, you can scroll back in our feed and check out the Shiva Ratri episode.
2: So, I, I mean, Shiva Ratri is the, I mean, that is a day on that particular day, cannabis could be found anywhere on the Indian street. I mean, you could be looking at stalls, which are like just giving away Bhanglasi. I mean, and that's a Bangladesh that'll get you incredibly high that you uh, might even have to be hospitalized. And even if you do, <laughs> <laughs> which people do, I mean, you know, like a lot of people do because it's not something, you know, people uh, generally take. And, you know, once a year it's, it's out there and, you know, people would just, just drink it. And the funny thing is, it just wouldn't come on like right away, like alcohol or, you know, some of the other things, you know, even after like. Half an hour, sometimes people don't really feel anything. So they'll think, Oh, I think it didn't really do anything. They just have like a little more, and then later on, they just get hospitalized. But the particular thing about here is that on that day, if you get hospitalized, the doctors are not really going to question you or go- going to call the cops that, Oh, this guy is, you know, like really fucked up on cannabis. So I should just call the cops first before I give him any treatment. They would just treat you and they'll send you back home, and it's all right. It's absolutely all right. And the very next day, if you're hospitalized for the same thing, you know, they will have to call the cops on you. So it, it really gets, you know, interesting. It's not written somewhere and it's not like it's written somewhere like, oh, on Shivratri, you could get high and be fine. It's just something which is understood and agreed upon. So there's like one more day. There's Holi and on Holi as well, you know, it's it's a festival of color, You know, it's uh, you know, as the spring, you know, season comes in, you know, we celebrate this. And you can get high on that particular day as well on cannabis. But the very next day, again, it's illegal and you're going to jail and everything, you know, persists.
1: So one one out of roughly every 180 days, it seems like India has has the right weed policy. But uh, to Abdullah's question, what is the perception of a cannabis consumer and, and the culture? Did you feel stigma
2: or do you feel stigma now? It has changed a lot. I mean, in the last 10 years, it, I, I would say, because... Um, 10 years uh, back from now, like 2010, if somebody got to know, I mean, about your cannabis usage, that would have been absolute blast. Uh, But now you can have a conversation, like you can have somewhat of a conversation with people. I mean, even people uh, would say, you know, that, oh, it's a bad thing, like you shouldn't be uh, smoking cannabis. But then they would say, yeah, I understand. Nowadays, you know, it's, it's going on. There is some medical to it, but still don't do it. But I think amongst young people, it, it, it's uh, it's flourishing, flourishing really well and they accept it like uh, I, I think pretty openly and even people I, I've met like people who are like younger to me like around like 24, 25 and all that. And even if they're not smoking, you know, they, they're fine with it. They, they have friends, you know, who smoke and they understand, you know, that this is something just like alcohol. Just some of my friends drink alcohol and some of my friends, you know, smoke cannabis. There are some programs in India as well. I mean, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, we have a, we actually have a license uh, as a company here to actually grow hemp, but it's still very stringent, and there's not really a market for it. So it's it's really in its infancy. Uh, I I would say. I mean, if if you're talking really in, in that like market sense, you know. And. And
1: getting, getting uh, kind of back to your work, maybe we could start with just a working definition of what a land race strain is and means, and what makes preserving these land race strains beyond, as you say, the cultural aspect of it, genetically, what about those plants makes them unique and special, and how does being able to put a uh, value on them
2: uh, in turn help these farmers? When you talk about like land, the word landrace, it actually uh, it's one of the most argued things. I would say, you know, even within our our, like tightly knit community that we have of uh, many breeders and you know other plant specialists, Uh, not everybody seems to be agreeing on like one fixed definition when it comes to landrace. But when you speak in general, a landrace basically means a plant or species, you know, that is actually adapted to a certain locale over time. But when we come to cannabis, you know, it actually has a lot more to it. What we have done is we have basically broken it down into like three and four different things. So the first thing in landrace is a primordial landrace. A primordial landrace basically is when you're speaking of a plant, which is basically in its primordial form. It hasn't been, you know, affected by any, you know, outside influence, like people hasn't come in and tried to domesticate them. Nobody has come in and, you know, thrown some like foreign genetic material there. So so those are basically the most precious and the most important varieties that we actually have to find. And, you know, unfortunately, these varieties can now only be found in the places where you have these borders like India, Pakistan and you're know, uh, around like India, China, because those are the only places where people couldn't go to and, you know, domesticate those plants. So that's where you get them from. Then you come down a little bit. And second category is basically where you have domesticated land races. Where people have taken those plants, like uh, cultures like let's just say Malana has taken uh, primordial varieties from their from their area, and they've started domesticated them. So once you domesticate these varieties, this, some of their features change. You know they get more robust, they they produce more, they produce better. Plus there's a lot of artificial selection that goes into it. You know they start selecting for better plants and all that. So eventually that changes the population in a very profound way and you know they can start shaping it, leaving the imprint of their culture and as they want it to be. That's your domesticated land race. It's a land race variety, but it's domesticated by people, by farming communities. After domesticated you have this another interesting category that we have for land races and I actually uh, observe these varieties in Pakistan in Tira Valley. So what they were doing is they're domesticating their varieties but in a very different way instead of actually taking the local varieties and trying to you know domesticate them over many many generations what these people do is they bring varieties from a different area where people have already domesticated them their their particular varieties their strains and they would bring them into their area and mix it with their local varieties and that would like really speed up the domestication process because they're creating like a hybrid in a way but between two different like land-based varieties in order to achieve those, uh, you know, features which you get after domestication, but a little faster. When you're talking about land races, you're speaking of raw material. So we have to understand that all these beautiful hybrid varieties that we're enjoying today, you know, all of these, uh, you know, punch and, you know, candy and everything, they're all a byproduct of the amalgamation of these land race varieties. Basically, you know, every last hybrid that exists is actually a mixture of two, three, four or even more landrace varieties. Landraces are the raw materials and we have to make sure that, you know, we preserve the landraces because the work which has been done up until now to this point, I know it looks beautiful and everything, but that particular breeding work hasn't been done In a very mindful way, I mean, most of that, most of that breeding work happened under the environment when things were not legal. So they really couldn't do things the way they should have done, like a tomato breeder would do, like a potato breeder would do, because they're not scared of someone really coming into their house and, you know, like busting them with the plants. So those breeders could really do things which are required when you're like breeding plants. And because cannabis was illegal for such a long time, you know, not only that these people, you know, just... Couldn't do so many things, couldn't really scale up their operations and, you know, do the right kind of selection in terms of every single cannabinoid and, you know, do the uh, testing on patients and everything. There is another facet to it that a lot of scientific minds couldn't join the party early on when breeding process was happening because, you know, because of the stigma, you know, because it could land you in hot soup, you know, if, if you're like caught and everything, you know, back in 70s and, you know, 80s. And that's when really, you know, all of these breeding was really taking place. These varieties were starting to get amalgamated and, uh, you know, uh, it was taking root. All of these hybrid uh, varieties were taking root. So cannabis basically, you know, is a completely untapped species right now. You know, we, we have basically not even crashed like one percent of its surface when you talk about in terms of making hybrids. And, I, and I'll tell you why I'm not just saying it, you know, for the sake of it. I'm saying it because... When you look at the uh, hybrid catalogue that we have today from Europe to America, you can see all of these varieties have basically come down from a handful of seven or eight varieties, which were initially bred. And then everything else is actually an intermix of all these. And the initial varieties which were bred, they were only bred by using Afghans, Pakis, and a few Indian, you know, a, a, a couple of Southeast Asian, like a Thai, a Laos, maybe one from, you know, Cambodia. And, and those seeds didn't really come in a way they come now. I mean, you know, now we go to these place, places, we're documenting each and every plant the seed is coming from, we're documenting the features. We're not just getting seeds from any random plant, we're getting seeds from so many of these different plants for so many different reasons. So when you think about all of these things, that's when you really realize that, you know, now we really have this opportunity when not only most of these breeders have the legality on their side, we also have the other side of it. We have access to so many different places now, and we can get 100x like, more varieties, land-based varieties. And if we just start over once again, we could start from scratch. It could be done in a way that you know it should have been done when it, when it started. Unfortunately, the environment was just not the same you know, as it is now. So just from the genetic standpoint, I think it's absolutely essential that you know, we should preserve these varieties and you know, if, if we're not preserving these varieties, then we're basically risking ourselves to be forever left out, left out with just these a small, really tiny fraction of you know what could be achieved out of cannabis. Really, I mean, the best is really yet to come. Trust me. I mean, you know, it's really overwhelming when you yeah. when you think about this.
0: Yeah, no, it, it, it's incredible. I'm wondering. Do you have contact with the Pakistani Land Race Exchange? I mean, you know, this is one of the world's most contested borders and cannabis does not care about those borders, right? It's like, you know, culturally and just, you know, geographically, there is going to be a lot of variety there. So what's your relationship with the Pakistani Land Race Exchange?
2: Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, uh, he's like, uh, I mean, those people are like great friends to me and, you know. It's it's basically like an extension of you know what we were doing. It's an extension of the same thought process, uh, same intent. These people are doing fantastic job. I mean, they started a little late, but they are like working 10x faster. So they're like basically you know you know doing so much better, and they're they're getting so many of these varieties from places that we even haven't heard of when you talk about Afghanistan and you talk about countries like Pakistan there are so many of these secluded regions you know that people even uh, doesn't even know that exist and they have flourishing cannabis cultures there plants that look so uh, you know just as good as anybody's in America or England or anywhere in the world most of the genetics that comes from Pakistan and Afghanistan you understand they're really high in you know cannabinoids and in, you know, terpenes. Those basically are the varieties that you wanna use which you can actually use to make great plants immediately, you know, like the plants which has commercial viability. They, they see a lot of merit in that sort of work because, you know, it flowers for very short time. It has a lot of cannabinoids. It has a lot of terpenes. It yields well. So it just has everything right about it. The most sought after varieties that uh, come, they come from Afghanistan and Pakistan both. That's one of the reasons why their work is so important right now.
1: Uh, it's, it's really beautiful to think of that border. You know, I didn't really need to wait for your answer to know that You were going to be cool with the weed people in Pakistan. They're going to be cool with you. That's something we find all over the world. And I think by pushing cannabis to the margins and pushing cannabis consciousness to the margins, the forces pushing that way are the forces that want borders and bad feelings and... Hypercapitalism. And so by pushing back in the other direction, we do a lot of good work. Uh, it's beautiful to hear that. As great moments in weed history, you know, we always do like to find uh, this story has everything. It's got lots of weed and it's got lots of history. And I'm wondering if there's a moment in your work where. You were able to recover a specific plant uh, that has great value or personal meaning to you, or a community uh, where you were able to intervene and
2: and buy their seeds and and help them continue their work and flourish. There are like really n number of uh, you know examples that I could uh, really give right now, but. One that, you know, I I really would like to mention here would be the Swabi release that we just did, you know, from Pakistan. Because my father's family, you know, like before uh, before 1947, so they were like uh, in Swabi. So they used to live there. So uh, when the partition happened between India and Pakistan in 1947, they became two separate countries. They actually traveled over to this side because they were like Hindus. So like. You know, Hindus was com- were coming to this side and, you know, most of the Muslims, not all of them, I would say, but yes, most of them, there was an exodus of, you know, such a way. So they they basically traveled over and then they settled into, you know, the Himalayan state, which they found like somewhat similar, you know, to the environment they come in. So that that's sort of like an ancestral village for me. And, you know, I, I always wanted to get seeds from that place. Somehow, you know, I was able to make this contact with this, uh, you know, guy from the university there and he sent me some seeds back in 2016 and I actually kept those seeds for a few years with me. Then somewhere around like 2018, you know, I I actually started growing them and I, I found out that, you know, these were like beautiful plants. I thought they had great values when I used those plants after flowering. So I, Spoke to another guy, spoke to this breeder in America, his, uh, his name is Mass Medical Strains, and I told him what I really want you in is that because you're in a place to do this work in a proper way, that it should be done, the respect this plant deserves. I'll send you these seeds and you grow them, you multiply these seeds and you get to everyone. And you know, whatever the uh, revenue comes from those uh, selling those seeds, we could take it and we could, you know, donate that money towards like a good cause. Uh, we went ahead with it and you know we did it like fast forward like year year and a half and you know we were like ready to uh, really release the seeds they came out really nice and they made four or five versions and by the time we had inception of this concept that you know we had i wanted to make a cannabis library that i'm making right now in my home state in Uttarakhand. and we said you know how about this you know we fund that library with the money that will be generated from the seed sales and what we did whatever the money came we You know, we sold those seeds to everyone. They were basically preserved. They were preserved with that, uh, you know, breeder that actually did the preservation mass medical strains. And then uh, they went out to, I don't know, hundreds and thousands of people. And, you know, they are going to preserve. They're going to be preserving it, creating new varieties with it. And not only that, it went to so many people that didn't even know that that place exists. Now they know about the place. Now they know about the culture. Now they have the seeds from that place and they can even experience the uh, an essence of that culture in, in some way the best part that came out of it which was not expected was as I mentioned earlier in the conversation T- there was THCV and basically every last plant that we tested we tested around like 20 plants at random and this is absolutely unheard of I mean you know you do get get it in fraction and you know in one or two plants but having it all across the board which just the surprise just like the cherry on the cake you know it was just like You do this hard work and you know, the God gifts you.
1: Can you also give us an example of how your work has improved things on the ground for specific indigenous farmers by by being able to create a revenue stream for these seeds? How does that change
2: their experience directly? Basically, every uh, place that we've been to, you know, is is an example. You talk about Balochistan, you know, we we help those people get some money so they can like dig a well for themselves. Because it's really hard to get uh, water out there. And then there were like some places that you didn't really have electricity. So we thought we'd offer them like solar panels and these, you know, like foldable solar panels. that They can even like travel up to places. But in very particular, you know, if I have to like exemplify, you know, how it it really changes and helps people is, you know, if you go to Uttarakhand, you know, that's basically the state I belong to and what we've done for people there i mean you know we have basically run like a uh, sort of like a campaign for helping people you know throughout the season and, and 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 telling them how to actually you know grow their plants so that they can produce more and then they can have a, like thicker stems so because once they have like thicker stems they can get like more out of those uh-huh. not just in terms of cannabis we make those people collect all those stems and all those barks at one place and then we have connected them to uh, uh, these people you know who are looking for fiber and you know they're, they're like factories and flatland regions you know in the urban centers of india and they have no idea these people exist and this is within india so now those people are not only just you know extracting resin from their cannabis plant they're also you know growing their plants in a way that it will get them revenue not just for the resin also for you know the bare stalks and the stems that they couldn't get the revenue for before i mean they didn't even know that they could sell them And then comes the seed, I mean, you know, there are two ways, I mean, you know, of course they're getting like, they're selling bulk seeds for like nutritional purpose to all of these companies now, Uh, to be very honest, I mean, that doesn't really pay them. But what's really paying off, you know, these people, I think is when their seeds are actually being bought by these breeders, these breeders are actually giving a good value, a good amount of money for this seeds that it deserves, because they look at those seeds, not just, you know, something for eating or bird food, they're looking at those seeds as a genetic treasure. And rightly so they are, you know, the people who understand that how important these seeds are, they pay good money and these part of that money is going to those people. And we can see that those people have been able to use that money to actually create a little bit of, you know, like, you know, renovating their houses, you know, creating two extra rooms and renting them out to someone, just creating like a, a, a different income stream for them in, in in many ways, you know so that's great i mean you talk about malana i mean the farmer that we were working with we gave him money to actually build like a small uh, cafe for himself on his land and he was able to do that and now he's just like renovating it and he'll be able to run it from like next year's and act- next year and actually make some money and then he can just develop that business and you know they can like slowly transition if someday you know something bad happens because again as much as i would like this to stay and go on forever I understand the way things are gonna happen here and the way things have gone down anywhere. These people will hardly you know, exist or hardly be able to survive. Something
0: I try to espouse to all people of South Asian descent or people from places where cannabis is an indigenous cultural element is that this is truly a really deep part of our culture. But you know, a lot of people are severely disconnected from it. There's a lot of people, Pakistani, Indian, Hindu, Muslim who have completely forgotten in this post-colonial world that we live in, that cannabis is a part of their culture and they think it's a bad drug, you know, just like any other number of things, because that's what the letter of the law tells them. So what would you say? What is your message to all those people all over America, all over the world who are of South Asian descent, who think cannabis is a bad thing? What would you tell them to bring them back into the fold to get back in touch with this crucial cultural trade
2: of ours? The only thing I want to remind those people is that cannabis is really the only thing that really ties us in this thread. And I'm I'm going to tell how, you know, and this is a beautiful example, again, going back to India and Pakistan. You know, in India, you know, people would say, oh, it's cannabis is in our religion. It's why, you know, we use it and why it's such a big part of, you know, India and then you go over to these other countries, you know, go to Pakistan, Afghanistan, and and, and there's no, you don't have like a Hindu majority over there and the cannabis uses just as prolific as it is in India and then you really have to think that wait, you know, maybe it's not the religion, maybe it's not even the culture, you know, because no matter what culture you run into, they all love cannabis for some reason Maybe it's the plant itself that has this divine connection, you know, that, that runs through at least everyone, you know, who, who descends from a place, you know, where, where, where cannabis grows naturally, it's indigenous to that place. I mean, at least those people in, in, in some sense have to understand, you know, if this is something bad, if you're going to call cannabis bad, then you're basically saying your own culture is bad. I mean, you're, you're basically pointing finger at part of your own culture which is not just part of your culture in a very, you know, like a subtle way. It's it's a deep and inseparable part of our cultures. You know, we can have all these problems, you know, throw bombs at each other. But you know, if we're going to talk about cannabis, it's the same sentiment, we all love it. Cannabis is love, love is cannabis. Really, I mean, you know, if you're pointing fingers at cannabis, you're pointing fingers at your own culture, you're pointing finger at love. Really, I mean, you have to think about this. I mean, why is this one plant is loved everywhere by almost everyone. It helps everyone and it's it just about does and gives anything that human beings ever need on this earth to survive. That is
0: very, very well said and we really thank you for it. We could not agree more and I'm sure I speak for both of us when I say we learned a lot from our conversation with you, Iranzin, from Indian Land Race Exchange. You guys are doing such crucial work for cannabis history and for cannabis culture all over the world. And we give you a great big, great moments in weed history. Salute for it. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Go follow the Indian Land Race Exchange. They've got a lot of beautiful images of this cannabis that we've been talking about all episode and you can stay up to date on everything they're up to in the fight to preserve cannabis thanks so much for joining us on the show thanks at home for listening and we'll see you next time
1: well that's the show folks thanks so much for listening and if you stuck around this long please consider supporting us on patreon you could put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, Pax. Go to pax.com and use promo code greatmoments, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.